Hi, I'm Alan Watt, and today is February the 2nd, 2007. This is CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com with another spontaneous blurb, which generally are just thoughts that flicker through my mind as the day progresses, or come out just before I, I talk. Things come to the surface sometimes. I was thinking about the crisis we live through all through our lives, one after the other. That's crisis, not lies I'm talking about. And how the average person not only can't really keep up with it all, all the, the, the real things that happen, the real fears and the crises which are manipulated, the possible crises coming up, all the things that keep us on edge, fearful and obedient. And obedience is the, the real technique that, is, that comes out of fear-mongering, obedience, the technique of creating it. Uh, tribal nature makes most people who are followers look to the leader for the answers to solve their problems. That's why you have a Santa Claus, uh, the good daddy, who a child thinks or has been taught to think brings all the freebies to them. The greatest con for commercialization ever devised. That's why people turn towards their deity, whatever one they've been given, to solve their problems for them. That's why the child looks towards the parent. At least they used to in the old days. Now they don't really have to. They've got guidance counselors at school who often do, in this day and age, have more contact and exchange more information, have more conversations with the children. than the parents do. You have to look back to see how the plans that were laid down for the centuries were to culminate in a new world order for the age of Aquarius. This is the age where Many of the, the helpers, the workers towards this at the low levels thought they were going to bring in the, the, the age of peace and happiness. The infantile dream of, of having no worry, uh, just living a perpetual childhood. So they gave them the hippie movement, as they call it, and broke out an updated form of music which had been experimented with in the 1920s. The music was to be accompanied with drugs and miniskirts and different fashion designs aimed specifically at a younger generation. It's always a young generation you must capture if you want to move things in a big way and move the agenda forward 
But in the 1920s when they brought out the Charleston and the miniskirts and the free love and made booze a very naughty thing to have which guaranteed that booze cans sprung up all over the place and the young would go to them. And they also brought in drugs too. Cocaine was being thrown around in a heavy way back in the 20s, the roaring 20s. The problem with the free love and the cocaine and the drugs and the, the booze was that they didn't have the pill at that time. They didn't have all the abortion clinics up and running. And so they, they had a tremendous fallout from pregnancies. And certainly back street abortionists uh, sprung up all over the place. And that's a whole different story in itself. The uh, the homes, the orphanages, which we know today the big ones sprung up to take care of all the unwanted children, they came out of that era. They didn't have the welfare state and all that. So what happened was the big planners of culture went back to the drawing board with what they'd learned and revamped it all and suddenly in the 60s it burst out all over with the pop music to follow it so father the pop was followed by the rock you see and the drugs And Britain was, the BBC was one of the biggest pushers for the drugs because they got these groups that suddenly appeared out of nowhere. And we know from exposure since that they were trained by professionals to appear on the scene. But they came out of nowhere at the time and were getting pushed on top of the pops. That was the BBC one where they come on and they'd mime their song then the next bunch would come on and mime their song they had to mime because they didn't even give them time to plug anything in or set up their gear it's impossible but most of the viewers never noticed that they thought they were playing and uh, and, and the parents did too that watched this and it all seemed very innocent at the beginning except when they would bring on certain leaders of the groups for interviews and they were always stoned up their minds some of them fell off the chairs and the interviewers rather than being taken aback or the television cutting that part uh, would the, the interview would turn to the camera and, and give this naughty wink like ha ha aren't we naughty this was all to encourage the whole drug movement an idea as I say that they tried before on a more limited scale under prohibition which made it really exciting to get into booze cans where the drugs were too and they coupled this with the advent of the of the pill for unwanted pregnancies thought that at least for the ones who took it 
it had tremendous fallout for a lot of the women who came down with blood clots and strokes and so on, but that was all kind of hushed up at the time. And we definitely saw tremendous changes. And the newspapers began to also rant on about this exciting period of change. And hippie communes were being sponsored to go off and try and live in the woods. These little communes were awful like the the habitat areas, a preliminary habitat area of the United Nations, which they're promoting at the moment, and shortly will be pushed into effect. And nothing happens by chance in culture. It's promoted to the public, who simply go along thinking it's actually theirs. And nothing works greater than conning a young generation into telling them that this is their culture. The youngsters had no reason to disbelieve this. They thought it was their culture because all the magazines suddenly appeared, youth magazines, teenage magazines, uh, hyping it up. But it wasn't designed by teenagers, it was designed by very old people who knew the business of culture creation. The drugs tied in with the the breaking down of society. It was one of the reasons which would be pushed for creating massive internal armies of police and special drug squads, a whole build-up of officialdom that would eventually control a future population. That's part of the reason they had to have the drugs there, and also to, to literally create such disruption within society that the old customs, the old way, the culture, the, the, your cult, culture, your cult, would be broken down. And it wasn't yours anyway, because the previous one had been designed as well for them. And it definitely separated the generations. That was the encouragement of it, to break the gener- to break a generation from adopting the ways of the previous one. That's really why it was pushed. And out of the blue came these eccentric talkers, talkers on stage, widely publicized like Dr. Timothy Leary who would often go on his stage with his white coat of the scientist the new priest you see and exemplify the, and glorify drugs to make the youth think it's so exciting alternate experiences the Aldo Huxleyan technique of mind control really because if you're not in charge of your mind who is why would you hand it over to someone else which lots of people do. We know now that Timothy Leary worked for the CIA. That that is no surprise. And it wasn't even a surprise to me when I was small, watching all of this stuff happening, watching adults' reactions to it, uh, watching uh, older children's reactions to it, and how they adopted the outfits, the 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 gene theory. Uh, that's the gene theory, the blue genes, the blue lodge, the similarity of 
the uniforms in China, and also the miniskirts and the free love attitude. They never talked about the sexually transmitted diseases, which went rampant as well. And that again is another story. However, Timothy Leary is an interesting name. A Timothy. Because if you speak it out, you get time off the Leary, you see. And the Leary, the Leary in old Europe and in England was the man who went around with the long pole with a light on the end, the burning light, to light the street lamps, which were gas, in the 1800s into the early 1900s. So there's no coincidence there with his name. Looking at history can be comical at times because some things are put right out there so obviously for certain people to understand but the rest, the masses don't they, they will speak off these things without, and be very serious about them without knowing what it even means and a lot of countries had their own versions of Leary promoting the staff to students you'll find in the behavioral sciences back in the 60s or definitely in the 70s they came out with a a wired up motorcycle helmet which produced a mild magnetic field on a certain frequency and this would give you altered states the same types of altered states in fact as certain of the drugs do the, the hallucinogenic drugs EMP, electromagnetic pulsations, can also alter your reality, make you see things which aren't there. Yet, in the behavioral sciences, it's well understood that they can give you the exact same experiences with this helmet as the the drugs they use in Latin America, Peru and so on for their, for their experiences and you'll see the same things you have the Lilliputian ones where you see small people 
and it's caused by alterations in the temporal lobe of the brain. You can also stretch it further into the harp technology, which also beams out EMP. And that could control, at least as we know in theory, whole nations of people. Altering the temporal lobe will make you highly excited or placid, depending on the slight variations of the frequency. The reality we live in is a manufactured reality, scientifically put together. So complex because it's your entire reality, it's all the facets that control it, manipulated from a, a single head, you might say, the capstone. And drugs were thrown over university walls at some points out of limos in garbage bags to get the whole ball rolling free prior to that we can look into all of the the medicines that suddenly came out in the 1800s by the Bayer company in England the buyer is the family name or bower of Rothschild. They still have the buyer patent. They, they run buyer. They make aspirin today. That's their fa- one of their family businesses. They're always involved in drugs on the one hand and, and money on the other. And the running of countries. But in the 1800s, they came up with all these medicines which had opiates in them. So no matter what your problem was, uh, they, would, they would have a brand of medicine with an opiate in it, which also could produce these, these experiences. Uh, drug people down, made them compliant, and made them manageable. However, it was highly addictive, so they'd lose certain functioning abilities. But they really tried that on the population of Britain. But luckily, Britain at that time had a healthy pub industry. And the people preferred to go to the pubs where they'd socialize and chat about politics and all that kind of stuff. And pass on local and regional and international news. So the pubs, in a sense, defeated the the opium industry when they tried to bring it in to the population of Britain and other parts of Europe. And at that time, there was no prescription needed. You could buy it over the counter. The same people, the same families, in fact, that had forced the opium into India, into China, in the opium wars, are still running the show today. You see the same family names. And then in the U.S. they still go to Yale. It's hereditary. And you wonder why the drugs proliferate. Always into the poorest areas. 
the crimes develop because people must get their fix. Police forces uh, constantly recruit and up their quotas for more and more manpower to deal with this problem. And yet it's a, a rigged problem. It's, uh, it's run, both sides are run by the same capstone, as I say. Back in 1996, an article was put out in Everybody's News, which is a, a Cincinnati alternate, alternative paper. On, and it was called The Jeff Lynch Story. So I'm going to read a little bit of this tonight. It's an interesting story to see an average person with an American culture joining the military and his experiences. When he, at every stage of the game, he thought he was doing the right thing. This was on page eight of Everybody's News. November 29th to December the 5th, 1996. The story was put out by Randy Katz, K-A-T-Z. These days, 34-year-old Cincinnati native Jeffrey Lynch deals in antiques, plies his skill as an artist and photographer, paints houses and does other odd jobs to support himself while he pursues his dream of producing documentary films. In the early 1980s, however, Jeff Lynch had very different aspirations. He was committed to a career in the U.S. military and in 1982 became one of only a handful of a group of 300 recruits to complete the U.S. Army's intensive and harrowing two-year courses in Special Forces Airborne Tactics and Medical Training at Fort Benning, in Georgia, and Fort Sam Houston in Texas. Lynch subsequently opted for the service in the Coast Guard and saw duty as a quartermaster on board the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Steadfast. In that capacity, in the words of an official unit commendation, he gave meritorious service in helping to carry out the Coast Guard's primary mission in the Caribbean to disrupt maritime and air smuggling of marijuana and cocaine into the United States. But while Lynch and his shipmates made some sizable high seas busts of marijuana shipments, he said they never saw or interdicted an ounce of cocaine. Though Lynch didn't see any U.S. bound shipments of cocaine, he did hear about some. Lynch's information came from an unexpected but authoritative source. While on shore leave in Honduras, Lynch ran into an old Special Forces buddy, one of the men who had finished the medical training course along with him at Fort Sam Houston. The man, however, was not in uniform. In the course of their conversation in an out-of-the-way bar in the Honduran coastal city of Porto Cortes, Lynch said his buddy told him he was on active undercover duty carrying out covert operations for the CIA's program in support of the Contras. Remember the the Iran-Contra scandal for drugs. It's amazing how much has happened. Uh, Huge things, really, and we skip over them. Uh, And that's a whole field in itself for those who want to look into it. 
with Ollie North, North who wanted to have uh, he worked on a team to bring in martial law in, over the whole country. Lynch said his friend also told him that he had seen a plane load of cocaine cleared for takeoff from a CIA maintained airstrip in the Honduran jungle and that the plane was bound for a US military base in this country. The plane's pilot, Lynch's friend told him, was supplied by the CIA with codes that would allow him to clear US customs air surveillance. The contents of the plane, his friend made clear, were destined for sale on the streets of America. To help fund the CIA's covert support of the Contra War against Nicaragua. In that moment, Jeff Lynch's ideas about his relationship to this country's military agenda changed forever. This is his story. I enlisted in the Special Forces, the Green Berets, when I was 18, in September of 81, Lynch recalls. I had the idea that this would be my rite of passage to manhood. I had seen John Wayne in the Green Beret, that's the movie, and the hormones were raging. Lynch never knew his natural father. His mother, mother's marriage to his stepfather broke up when Lynch was twelve. And thereafter he was raised in St. Petersburg, Florida, by his grandparents. His grandfather had also been in the military, but he was less than thrilled about his grandson's decision. He told me I was crazy for enlisting in special forces, Lynch recalls. Shortly after beginning training, Lynch began to think his grandfather was right. Looking back, I don't know how I made it. I was in the Army Reserve on active duty for two years training. Of the roughly 300 recruits, people from all over the Army who started out with us at Fort Bragg, only 14 completed distress training at Fort Benning and were sent to the medical training course at Fort Sam Houston. The pace and intensity of the Special Forces training, says Lynch, were designed to weed out most people. It wasn't only physical hardship, but also psychological stress. We, those who survived the entire training course, were very tight because we went through a lot together. Now that's the bonding that's forced in. There's a lot of psychological bonding goes on, which is intensified through scientific methods of training them. One of the most, the more harrowing and effective training procedures at Fort Sam Houston was the poetically de designated goat lab, Lynch says. It was an experience you'll never forget. They would take a full M16 clip and empty it into a herd of goats. Then, as surreal as it sounds, an instructor in a white smock would stand over us while we went to work. We tried to simulate a battlefield, and our job was to do everything we could to try and save these goats. Hmm. It sounds cruel, but it was an effective training. You can read in a book over and over how to stop arterial hemorrhaging, but when that artery is spurting blood in your face and you can take that clamp with your hand and it, the the hand on it, the bleeding stops, it gives you a high level of confidence. It also would help to further dehumanize you with natural feelings. That's also a part of the procedure to abuse then help, you see. 
Lynch also received intensive training in more sophisticated surgical techniques, some of which are not taught to civilian physicians until their surgical residencies after medical school. And, in addition to saving lives, Lynch was taught how to take them. They they taught us how to kill people and to make it look like someone else did it, says Lynch. They taught us how to kill a person and make it look like it was suicide. He understood the the rationale for that paradoxical element in his training, of course, but he was never comfortable with it. He was also concerned about the impact active duty in the special forces would have on his young marriage. By the end of his training, Lynch's concept of special forces active duty no longer was based on fantasies about John Wayne. The reality, spending two or six to nine months of the year in third world countries training indigenous rebel forces to overthrow governments the U.S. considered undesirable didn't seem to him worth wrecking his marriage for. He opted instead for active duty in the Coast Guard, went to the Navy's quartermaster school, and received a posting out of his adopted hometown of St. Petersburg on the medium endurance Coast Guard cutter Steadfast. Lynch served aboard the Steadfast from 1984 through 87 as the ship's crew focused on nabbing illicit vessels in and around the Caribbean choke points such as the Yucatan Passage and the Windward Passage off Cuba. In those three years, he estimates, he was involved in seizing several tons of marijuana on the high seas, though not one drop of cocaine. The drug shipment that made the most lasting impact on Lynch, however, was the one his captain let go free. It was off the Yucatan Peninsula early one morning, Lynch says. I was on watch with a young, inexperienced ensign. It was my job, as quartermaster, to keep track of where the ship was and to keep the official log, which was used in court whenever we brought people to justice. That's why you log on to the computer. It's a legality. It's being used as a record, uh, which one day will be used against you. It was really important to be very neat and precise, so I would keep a rough log, then go back and enter the information in the official log. What happened that morning, however, would never become an official entry in the Steadfast's log. We had picked up a radar contact, Lynch recalls. It was a good-sized craft running darkened ship, that is, with no lights, as if attempting to avoid detection. We came up on it and hit it with a spotlight. It was a Colombian fishing trawler, converted. It was loaded with dope. There was even marijuana stacked on the decks. You could smell it. Lynch says he advised the ensign to alert the ship's operations officer, as called for by Coast Guard procedures, shortly after making radar contact with the suspected vessel. The officers were asleep in their cabins, however, and the ensign hesitated to wake them up before making sight contact with the Colombian vessel. Shortly after the sighting had been made, though, everyone on board the Steadfast was wide awake. We'd sometimes go weeks without seeing anything illegal, says Lynch. This was a big bust. The captain comes up, and he's elated, as we all are. 
Then the operations officer turns to me and says, Quartermaster Lynch, where's the EPIC check? EPIC, EPIC, is the acronym for the Coast Guard's EI or El Paso Information Center, which is electronically linked to Washington-based military and government authorities. I like the name El Paso, like the Paso, Paso God. All Coast Guard ships are required to obtain EPIC clearance before taking action against any foreign vessel in international waters. In this case, however, the ensign had failed to inform EPIC of their action, even though a boarding party from the Steadfast was already steaming towards the Colombian trawler. The captain gets on the radio and orders the boarding party to return to the ship, Lynch says. They send the name and location of the trawler to EPIC, and the word comes back that it is a Category 1 vessel. Category 1, Lynch explains, is a code that automatically instructs all Coast Guard personnel that they are not to interfere with or even contact any vessel so designated. These dirtbags had been claiming no-speak English when we tried to make radio contact, Lynch says. Now the captain gets on the radio and tells them sorry to have interrupted your voyage. We've been diverted to an emergency search and rescue mission 100 miles east of here. You have a pleasant voyage north. Then we turned and steamed away full throttle. The bridge of the steadfast fell silent, Lynch says, while he struggled to control his own rage. By this time my marriage was on the rocks, due to the long separations caused by his sea duty. I'm writing everything down in my rough log and saying under my breath, This is bullshit, this is bullshit. Then the captain sees me writing this and comes over to me and says, Petty Officer Lynch, you don't need to put all that stuff in your official log. Lynch says the captain instructed him to enter only the time and place of their interception and to note that the encounter was determined not to be of no law enforcement value. I was angry, says Lynch. I said, sir, no disrespect, but this is bullshit. Meanwhile, my duty officer was looking at me as if to say, you are nuts because you just don't say that to the captain. In fact, Lynch's actions could have led to serious charges against him had his captain been so inclined. Fortunately for Lynch, he wasn't. Instead, Captain F.J. Schmidt summoned Lynch to his cabin. And after issuing a stern warning about the consequences of any further behaviour such as Lynch had exhibited on the bridge that morning, explained to him the real nature of a Category 1 vessel designation. He told me that designation is set up to protect undercover informants. We could have had an undercover DEA agent aboard that boat, and if we had been boarded them we could have gotten four, well, our people killed, and I felt terrible. That experience of the Yucatan Peninsula wasn't the only time that Lynch found himself feeling terrible as a result of conflict between the demands of his duty and the dictates of his own conscience. While helping carry out another aspect of the Coast Guard's mission in the Caribbean, he took the photo of Haitian refugees sprawling on the deck of the Steadfast that appears in the cover of this week's EN. We had intercepted them in the windward passage off Cuba, Lynch says. In the middle of the photo you can see two of the male Haitians looking sadly at something. They were watching their boat sink after our gunners had fired on it. 
part of the refugees' inconsolable sadness undoubtedly stemmed from what they knew lay ahead for them. Our orders were to return these people to Haiti. It was still during the Duvalier regime. When we docked there, the Haitian police drove paddy wagons right out onto the loading docks. They would beat the refugees savagely right in front of our eyes as they came off the ship. Then they loaded them up and took them away. Lynch's most distressing and disillusioning encounter, however, came not at sea, but on land. While helping to train Honduran Navy personnel in the techniques of drug interdiction, the steadfast dropped anchor of Porto Cortes, and Lynch and some of his shipmates were granted twelve hours shore leave. Lynch rambled off on his own, and eventually happened on a little bar where he stopped in for a drink and a sandwich before returning to his ship. There, he says, he ran across a former acquaintance whom he had never expected to see again, let alone in a seedy Honduran bar. The man was a fellow American, one of that handful who had completed special forces training with Lynch at Fort Sam Houston. I didn't recognize him at first, said Lynch. First of all, you don't expect to see other Americans in a place like that. And here he is with long hair and an earring, sitting in civilian clothes. Lynch will not divulge the name of the former Special Forces comrade out of concern, and doing so he placed the man's life in danger. However, Lynch says he had no trouble recognizing his fellow Goat Lab veteran once he spotted him. He says, Lynch, what the hell are you doing here? Then Lynch says the former comrade swapped stories for about an hour when he asked his buddy, what's with the hair? Lynch said his friend informed him he was working covert down here. We're not supposed to be here. Lynch said his friend told him the cover was necessary because Congress had cut off funds for the Contras. He was on active duty, A-team out of Fort Bragg, said Lynch, working covertly undercover for the CIA in support of the Contras. He was a Green Beret, an uncommissioned officer, still an enlisted man receiving active duty pay and working covertly for the agency, but if he was caught, he had to lie and say he was a mercenary acting on his own. He told me he was in Porto Cortes to meet a shipment of arms and to escort it along with several other CIA subcontractors, none of whom was present among the five or six other people in the bar where Lynch said he met his friend to a contra camp in the mountains near the Nicaraguan border, several hours away. Lynch says that when his friend heard what he was doing in Honduras, treating the Hondurans to board ships and seize drug shipments in accordance with international law, it struck the undercover Special Forces soldier as funny. He said, You guys are down here trying to stop the cocaine? We're sending it back to the States, I said. You're kidding. What do you mean? He said, I've seen them loading it on the planes. Tons of the stuff. Pure cocaine. They, Lynch says, were the Contras, working, people working with the Nicaraguan resi- resistance forces. And he's telling me he's seen tons of the stuff being loaded on planes and it's been flown back to the States and sold in America to finance the freedom fighters. At one point, Lynch says... His friend responded to his expressions of disgust and disbelief by saying the drug shipments were a small price to pay for freedom. That's how it's rationalized.
It blew my mind, said Lynch. Here, Vice President George Bush had come on board the Steadfast on the previous New Year's Day in the Bahamas, shook the hand of every member of the crew, and gave us a rah-rah speech about what a great job we were doing as soldiers on the front lines of the war on drugs. Regan, Bush, North, I know they knew what was going on. Lynch said as his friend told him about one plane in particular that he'd seen with his own eyes, loaded with cocaine to be flown from Honduras to an Air Force base in Texas. There, Lynch says, his friend told him, the cocaine was offloaded and allowed to be sold in the streets of America. I said, whoa, what? happens when these guys hit U.S. airspace and get confronted by customs. He told me that the pilot has a special designation code that they give customs, and customs lets them write in. The same thing as we're doing with the ships. Lynch says most of what his friend told him he presented to me in the form of a joke. He thought it was funny that I was trying like hell to stop drugs getting back to America, and he was hap uh, helping to get them in. It may have been like a joke, but Lynch said he is certain his friend was not kidding, and Lynch certainly wasn't laughing. Lynch had given his special forces comrade his word that he would not let the information imparted that afternoon in a little bar in Porto Cortes go any further. For years he kept the secret even when high school friends taunted him when he came home during leave. They'd say, what the hell are you doing out there? We have so much coke around here, you must not be doing your job. It really bothered me. Even after his military discharge in 1987, Lynch mentioned the conversation to no one except his wife and close family. His marriage, however, did not long survive the strain that his military service placed on it. A second marriage ended up when the failure of the war on drugs came home to Lynch in a very direct way. His wife succumbed to heroin addiction. Meanwhile, Lynch used his veterans' benefits to attend film schools at Ohio State University, where he once managed, using a handheld camera, to interview Ollie North <laughs> and ask him pointed questions about contra drug operations. Eager to corroborate his own information and to satisfy his own conscience, Lynch sought out any and all public disclosures regarding the CIA Contra drug connection. He closely followed, as most of the media did not, the congressional hearings chaired ten years ago by Senator Bob Kerry, which looked into a broad range of CIA complicity in a worldwide drug operations and other illicit activities in support of friendly governments. He clipped and saved a 1993 New York Times story that seemed to bear his own experience aboard the Steadfast, when the crew was ordered to let the trawler full of marijuana go free. The Times and 60 Minutes both did stories about a covert CIA drug sting operation that went awry and resulted in a ton of nearly pure cocaine reaching the United States, courtesy of the agency's anti-drug program in Venezuela. Then, last August, the San Jose Mercury News published an in-depth series of articles by reporter Gary Webb, which purported to prove 
the direct legacy of the American government's covert support for the Nicaraguan guerrillas was the crack cocaine epidemic afflicting America's inner cities, particularly Los Angeles. Well, you always dope the angels first day. Hearing about the series, now with its own website on the internet, Lynch wrote to the paper and obtained a copy. When he read it, he felt as if he had been awakened from a long nightmare. I said, thank God, after more than ten years, the truth has finally come out about what was going on down there. Others, however, weren't so sure. Many in the mainstream press poo-pooed the Mercury News series and criticized Webb for making overly broad inferences about the CIA levels of involvement in the drug shipments. On November 15th, Jeff Lynch managed to get through as a caller to C-SPAN's The Washington Journal, whose guests that day were Los Angeles Times op-ed page contributing editor Suzanne Garment and Boston Globe columnist Thomas Oliphant. Lynch asked why the mainstream press seemed to have blown off the Mercury news series attempted to discredit Webb and had largely ignored the Kerry Commission's report. He also tried to provide a basis for his questions by referring to his own Coast Guard experience in the Caribbean. The C-SPAN host cut him off. You'll find all through the news media a lot of the top people are actually working for the CIA. That's not a secret. With news organizations and individual journalists throughout the country lining up on one side or the other of the San Jose Mercury news debate, many have accused that paper of irresponsibly suggesting that the CIA had a direct involvement in illegal shipments of cocaine to Los Angeles and other American cities. Jeff Lynch's story bears directly on that controversy. EN, I guess it's EN or N, has, it's like ON actually in French, had its independently verified Lynch's service. Now this is actually this paper here, Everybody's News. So Everybody's News has independently verified Lynch's service record with the Coast Guard and has copies of Lynch's training diplomas, commendation letters, certificates of honorable discharge and other records. In our estimation, Jeffrey Lynch's accounts of his Coast Guard experience appears both accurate and credible. And if his former Special Forces training buddy was telling Lynch the truth about seeing a plane loaded with cocaine take off for the U.S. from the CIA-maintained airfield in Honduras, it may be history's eventual judgment that the only thing irresponsible about the assertions made in the San, the San Jose Mercury News series was that they didn't go far enough. And this is old stuff, you see, because we were being bypassed or it's been bypassed with all the other crises that have come down the pike since then. And it's well called the pike. This is the world we live in, where that which you think exists for a certain purpose does the opposite. It's, it's really the matrix you live in. Not only that, they've trained populations. Every country's done this to their own people. They've trained their populations to perceive things the way they're taught to perceive things and never to question what's really going on. We see it even within the churches down through the centuries. 
where when a priest is caught interfering with little boys who also believed in I think it was Al Gore's assertions that no child left behind well with the church it was no child's behind left and yet the followers didn't want to believe it because they've been trained to see these upright people as the most honest beings on the planet regardless of the evidence and even today when people are caught in the act so many of them can't believe it's true they will not believe it's true the alteration of perception through conditioning the fallout on society all societies of the drug seen has been tremendous it's also created large amounts of money for covert black operations as they call them and it's also created a, a huge military force of police within countries who are supposed to combat it and I've no doubt too they're told who to attack and who to let go who to ignore the same as every other institution is with their codes and so on the war has been on the public the public are the ones who suffer for this agenda and that's okay for the big boys to decide because it's their world as far as they're concerned this war is on the public it was declared a long time ago a long time ago and through agencies like special forces or the SES in Britain they have compartmentalized agencies within them they don't even know what their hands doing they can all go into training together and never know there's a section over there doing the opposite of what you're trained to do or supposed to do with your job the same in the CIA the same in the Mossad the same in MI6 etc right through across the whole planet there's a double game going on because it's all designed just like the Cold War was manufactured and designed and financed from the beginning by the same bankers that run the world and the same goal of world government run from Britain the whole thing was designed to create a, a huge technological scientific created a control of the public through scientific means that's what it was all heading towards during the Cold War they said it was going to be won by a war of science as they said that those with the most advanced sciences would win that war they were having annual meetings international meetings in Moscow with world science organizations where the top scientists of every country that was supposedly opposed to the Soviet regime were allowed to go and attend something you would never really do if this was a war which would be won by your, scient your scientists you wouldn't let them go and meet your enemy and the reason for that being is 
It was a joke, you see. It was to get every country to finance their government, to be taxed to the hilt in, in research and development to protect you, which had nothing to do with the Cold War. It was to do with this present stage we're at now and the age shortly to, to appear. We were all totally controlled through scientific technology. That's what it was all about. The two hands worked together, the left, the right. Everything has a different meaning from the one you've been taught to perceive. When you look at the old books written in the 1800s and the early 1900s from foundations, the big foundations, they were quite blatant about the society they were going to bring under way. A world government, uh, a trained, well-behaved society, and the eugenics sides of it, of course, went into the types of people who would be allowed to live and be allowed to procreate and the ones who would die. That goes even back into the 1800s. We find the beginnings of it openly discussed in Darwin's time because in the high occult system that Darwin and his family were, were part of is partially based on eugenics. The sad part is young men are always recruited to do the dirty jobs elsewhere and on their own people. They go through conditioning themselves which help them to accept what they're doing. They can always be rationalized and justified with enough conditioning no matter what they're doing. And the fallout on the public is phenomenal as drugs for instance have rampaged through society rampaged through society the fallout is incredible and it's still going on there's been a youth culture created and promoted through the culture creators, the industry of culture creation, to help destroy the old and a lot of the people in the age, regardless of how old they actually are, to bring in a new age where partially drugs will control their minds, authorized prescribed drugs, uh, which you'll have to take, it'll be mandatory to take them since the the various psychiatric associations have deemed that no one is perfectly sane except themselves and to get peace they have to radically alter uh, the chemistry, the brain chemistry of the populations it's not that I like to bring you bad news you see this isn't bad news, it's just news it's always been this way a war has always been waged on the people by a, a hidden religion, an oligarchy that understands this religion and their agenda, and they know where they're taking the world. Meanwhile, they give us fads to go through, distractions, 
uh, with the pop stars and the, the media stars and the rap stars and and that's what occupies people's minds trivia they go through their life in a, a, a haze of trivia and they're taught through egocentric techniques to ignore the unpleasant do not look at the unpleasant and people who don't look at the unpleasant are sitting ducks and that's what they want you to be when you're rolled over well it's snowing here I'm sure they'll give us a few good storms to hype up now that they've given us actual snow uh, they'll hype it up in a few storms before spring because they got to get this global warming agenda on on track they got to get us convinced we've got to give up every right we thought we ever had and go into a new scientifically designed system of living where everything will be done and chosen for us that's the real world we're living in just an agenda but I don't mind the snow albeit they brought a lot of it on with the spraying too different kind of spray they use then weather control is old stuff I'd love to answer more mail uh, I get so much written mail I can't literally I don't have time in a day to even answer them the email I try to get through there's so many people to and I flag pretty well every one of them to remind me to answer but as I'm doing it more and more is coming in and this particular talk even though it's one hour all in all the time it's uploaded into the main site and in the podcast and so on and the, and the mirror site is going to take five hours out of the day so I hope you forgive my rush when I do this this is a natural rush not the, not the high of the drugs you see it's a natural speed and we'll talk to you again from myself and Hamish who loves the snow he's got the hair to cope with that without a problem nature has made him very very well indeed it's good night and may your god or gods or whatever you worship go with you
dragging up to my door, took everything I had. She carried it back to the furniture store. Honey, I did feel bad. What in the world has any man got now messing with the furniture man? Got no dough, stand for show. Certainly will back you back. Take everything from a nursery plate, from a skillet to a frying pan. If there ever was a devil bought out any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey. Here comes Sal with an old old toe. Doctor said you can smell no more. Lord, go. Doctor, ring the bell. Women in alley. I'm simply wild about my good Babies in the cradle in New Orleans. The doctor kept a whip until the baby got me. Doctor whip until the baby got so. Mama said she couldn't smell no more. Lord, go. Doctor, ring the bell. The women in the alley. I'm simply wild about my good Okay.